Thank you for joining us today and a big thank you to our show sponsor, Amazing Jane Activewear, recommended as best leggings for running by Women's Fitness Magazine. Karen and I have been trialing their designs for a few months and we can happily recommend them. All designs are cut to skim, not cling, giving you confidence to look and feel great and focus on performance. So if you'd like to try Amazing Jane Activewear, please use our listeners special discount code RHH10 for 10% off all purchases at amazingjane.com. Amazing Jane ship around the world, so please check their website for details. Today we're talking about understanding body composition. So for some of us, it might be really important to uh, influence our body composition for health, for running, general well-being, and sometimes just to feel good about ourselves. Um, So today we're going to be talking about what is appropriate body composition, and that will depend on your individual goals. But we're going to be answering three questions. So what is body composition and how is it measured? Why is it important for health and running? And finally, we're going to be looking at which foods and nutrition could support you in finding appropriate and optimal body composition. Hello and welcome to She Runs, Eats, Performs, the podcast for female runners of all abilities. Please join Karen Campbell and Aileen Smith, nutritionists, friends and runners, who are here to help you translate sports nutritional science into easy to apply tips and plans, helping you enjoy peak running performance and especially adding in the female factors every woman needs to know to be a healthy runner. The suggestions we make during this episode are for guidance and advice only, and are not a substitute for medical advice or treatment. If you have any concerns regarding your health, please contact your healthcare professional for advice as soon as possible. If you'd like help from Karen and Ailey to design a personalized sports nutrition plan for your running, please contact them at Runners Health Hub. everyone welcome back I'm Aileen and I'm here with Karen Um, and just before we get started I just want to explain I've got a little bit of a sore throat today so if uh, if my voice gives up on me just give me a second to have a sip of water Um, so uh, that's just a little uh, little interlude interlude Um, as as always we're going to start off by sharing something personal uh, about our nutrition and running before we move on to discuss our topic today uh, which I think will be of interest to everybody and it's all about understanding body composition Um, so Karen how are you this morning I'm good thank you yes I I think I'm feeling better than you Aileen yeah yeah. I hope hope that um, your voice holds out and that you're not feeling too ill oh thank you um so uh, my question to do today, Karen, is that uh, we're we're now in May and it's not long until you are going to do your Windermere Marathon. So I just wondered how you're feeling about it and how's your training going? Yeah, well, Aileen, I have to say that I, I am starting to get a bit nervous and I do tend to always get nervous in the lead up to a race um, because I, I kind of start to worry that my training just hasn't been good enough and I I don't know if it's um, a feeling that other people have as well as they approach a big event um, I'd be really interested to know actually so do let us know um, because I even though I've been doing 
marathons and and races for a long time, I still get really nervous. And I think added to my nervousness this time is the fact that I haven't completed a marathon distance for at least two years um, due to the pandemic. Um, So my thought process at the moment really is, can I can I still do it? Uh, But clearly I've been putting in the training and. and but I think that the mind is is really powerful, and I know that I am capable of running a marathon distance because I've done it many times before. But I still I still find that the doubts infiltrate my my general positive thoughts. But anyway, I am now in tapering mode, and um, really, what will be will be now. I just have to wait and see, and um, I'll let everybody know once it's once it's all over and I've recovered. Um, but how about you, Aileen? Um, have you? What about your next race? How is your training going? Are you in training at the moment? And and really, what are your thoughts around it? Uh, I hope they're more positive than mine. Well, you know, I'm sure you're going to be absolutely fine, Karen. And uh, just for anybody who isn't in the UK, Windermere is actually up in the Lake Districts, and it's an absolutely beautiful area. But I guess the course will be a bit challenging. But you know, you're a mountain girl. Even though you live in London, you love the mountains. So I'm sure you're going to be absolutely fine. I'm really looking forward to hearing about how you get on. And and I'm sure you'll love up there so much. You'll want to go again, maybe not to do a marathon, maybe just for a bit of R&R next time. It's a a shame that you're going to be there um, for uh, a short time. But anyway, I'm sure it'll be great. Um, and, you know, you are so dedicated to your training. You're always quite inspirational to me, Karen, because you, you just always just focus on it. And I think that's a big lesson for us all. And I hope that's I'm gonna, what I'm going to be taking this summer. And I don't have much in my calendar with regards to races this year for various reasons. Um, but I will be in the Great North Run uh, in September. And, um, you know, that's usually the main event for me. And and some years I'll do more and other years I'll do less. And I'm not quite sure how this summer is going to go for me. But, um, you know, as you know, Karen, we we decided that we were going to plan a few episodes over the summer, over the summer to help people prepare both for the Great North Run and also for the London Marathon and the Great North Run being a half marathon and the London Marathon. Everybody knows what that is. Um, and, and obviously the tips that we'll share will help people doing any half marathon training and marathon training. Um, but we just thought it'd be nice to mirror what was going on uh, for everybody. So I think, you know, helping listeners with their health and nutrition alongside their run training is the thing that's really going to motivate me over the summer um, because I'm going to be doing it, you know, alongside other people. Yeah. And uh, I think that, that'll be really helpful for me and um, it'll help me keep pace with my training over the spring and summer. And in fact, our very first episode about the Great North Run is next week. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to that. And um, we'll we'll probably print a schedule actually so that people know um when you know when these episodes are coming up and uh hope that it's really going to help everybody and have a little bit of fun with it as well because you know it comes high sometimes can be a bit serious but let's have a bit of fun with it too sounds like a good plan okay so now let's um talk about today's subject which as i said is all about understanding 
body composition. And that's something I think most runners do focus on at some to some degree, uh, but maybe for different reasons. And for some, it might be about losing some body fat to reach an appropriate weight. And for others, it may be to lose some body fat to alleviate or prevent certain health conditions or concerns. And, and for others, it might be more about optimizing lean body mass to support run training and performance at, at races and at competitive level. Um, so I think there's three important questions to answer today, Karen, and it's all about the importance of appropriate body composition, depending on our own personal goals. And so the questions are, what is body composition and how is it measured? And, and we tend to talk a lot about body composition rather than weight. And I think it's really important that we, we focus in on what, what are the components of body composition. Um, ask the question, why is it important for our health and running? And, and then finally, what foods and nutrition could a could support us with appropriate or optimal body composition. So now that we've got an idea of uh, what we're going to talk about, uh, I wonder, Karen, if you could share maybe a, a definition of what body composition is. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the Oxford Dictionary of Sports Science and Medicine, um, it actually states that body composition is the relative amounts of different components in the body. Now, Michael Kent, who who um, helped produce this Oxford Dictionary, he went, goes on to say that sports scientists often divide the body into two main components. So there's the fat-free mass, which consists of all the body tissue which is not fat and fat mass and that's usually expressed as the percentage of the total body mass composed of fat. Now another definition that might be easier to comprehend um, that I found on an online source states with respect to health and fitness body composition is used to describe the percentages of fat bone and muscle in human bodies. The body fat percentage is of most interest because it can be um, really helpful in assessing health. So, um, so those are so that's general sort of definition of body composition. Yeah, so it's really what our body is made up of. You know, bone, fat, muscle, and, and water as well, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so that's that's really great. Thanks for defining body composition for us, Karen. And I, I think it's worth just reiterating um, today we're looking at body composition linked to health and fitness only uh, and I think it's also important to remember that we've all got different physiques so a healthy body composition will be different for, for individuals and you know Karen and I we have very different body types and if you've looked at our website and seen our photographs you'll you'll all know that and so we have to adapt our expectations of our body composition you know I'm never going to be as tall and lean as Karen is and she's got a completely different body shape to me so I think that's worth mentioning and it's why personalized nutrition is important and it's important to have a perspective on what is ideal for you you know there are parameters that we all are aiming for but you know you've got to be realistic in your expectations mm -hmm. uh, and I think another point that I'd just like to make is that Although we're going to be talking about reducing fat mass to obtain appropriate body composition, we've always got to remember that some fat is important for, for many really important health reasons. And I'm sure we're going to discuss those later, Karen. Yeah, absolutely, Aileen. I totally agree with you there. And I think that the word you used there, um, 
was appropriate body composition. I think that's the key word because it is possible to have a have a fat mass that is too low, which could lead to to health concerns as much as too high a body mass. Um, but like you say, Aileen, we, we'll we'll maybe delve into that a, a little de- deeper later on. Okay, so we, we've defined what body composition is. So let's have a look at how it can be measured. And there are really so many different ways um, body composition can be measured. And some of you may have uh, heard of them, and you might have even tried some of them. So the most common ones, uh, for example, are BMI. So that's body mass index. And um, that's the most commonly known one, but um, often it's not very accurate or indeed helpful at times. Um, There's also um, skinfold assessment. So that's where um, you would use calipers to pinch those inches, as they would say. Um, And and there's also something called bioimpedance analysis, so BIA. And many gyms contain these machines, um, weighing machines now, and they give you um, an overview of body composition. And and some nutritionists use them too. so the, there are some other ways also um, that body composition can be assessed. So um, there's the DEXA scan, but that's more associated with bone mineral density assessment. Uh, there's something which um, is sort of fairly new technology uh, called bod pods. I've never actually seen or tried one, Karen. I don't know whether you have. I've um, seen one, but never tried one. Okay. And um, and then there's also something called echo MRI, which again is some newer technology. So I guess these things are evolving all the time. Um, so there's many different ways of assessing body composition. But Karen, how would we know which one to choose and which one is best? Yeah, I agree, Eileen. There is a vast array of ways of assessing body composition, all with different differing degrees of precision in their analysis. But I think really accessibility of the test will principally determine which one an individual will use. And that would be accessibility, but also alongside other um, things, including the cost, also the technical skill required. Is it something you can do yourself or do you need a professional to do it? The level of accuracy of, um, of the measurements that are taken as well, time to complete the test some of these ones that you've spoken about and some of these um, newer kids on the block they do they are quite time consuming and invasive and then um, with some there is a potential for exposure to toxicity for example small amounts of radiation but also why is the individual assessing their body composition why why they're doing it will also determine which um, approach they use and really what is their ultimate goal from from getting the readings for their body composition? So that will really help determine which test that a, a, an individual will use. Okay, so lots of things to consider there, really, depending on what your individual situation is. Um, so I think from what you say, BMI is probably the most accessible one and the most popular one. You know, it's easy to find a, a tool online to pop in your height and weight and your age and it'll tell you what your BMI is um, and the BMI is is something that refers to the body mass so your weight and height uh, using a particular formula and that's why you know it's often easy just to go online and do it um, and then what the, um, the there are BMI sort of categories and guidelines and they range from um, being underweight to being obese and there's various different 
scales for that. So if you've got a BMI of under 18.5, you would be classed as being underweight. And this is relating to adults. Um, being uh, the normal range would be 18.5 to 24.9. So it's a fairly wide range there. Um, and then being overweight is over 25. And then there's various different degrees of obesity. I won't go through them all. Um, but, you know, I think you just, when you um, go in, if you go online and do it, it, it'll show you usually a colored graph and it'll show you where you stand on, whether you're in the normal range or whether you're um, overweight or underweight. Um, so the, the issue, I think, with with BMI is that a high BMI reading doesn't always uh, correspond to an increased amount of body fat or vice versa. And that's because BMI doesn't differentiate between fat mass and fat-free mass. And muscle weighs more than fat. Um, so to put that into context, somebody with a high BMI might also have a high muscle mass and a lower fat mass. But somebody with a low BMI might have a high fat mass and a lower muscle mass. So it doesn't, you know, it's an indicator, but it doesn't really give you a detailed picture. So I always think about the the example of a, a very fit, healthy rugby player, somebody who's maybe got a very stocky, muscly build, and they would be deemed to be heavy, but actually they they've got a very low fat mass. So that's a good way of sort of explaining how it it might not be a great way of uh, working out whether you're healthy or not. Yeah, absolutely. And Aileen, I think that that is the issue with um, BMI, especially within an athletic population, um, different types of sports as well. So so as a runner, it might not necessarily be that helpful. But another common um, approach to measuring body composition is the skinfold assessment. Now, again, some people might have heard of it. They might have actually um, had that done. Um, so what happens is these skinfold measurements are taken using um, calipers, which gain the skin fold thickness in millimetres of different areas where fat typically accumulates. So, for example, on the abdomen, on the hips, the arm, also on um, the back and the thigh. Now, once the measurements are recorded, the numbers are then inserted into an equation that calculates um, a body fat percentage percentage and alternatively um, body lean mass. Now, when the measurements are performed with good technique, I have to say that is important that the technique is, is good. The skin fold test can quite accurately predict body fat and it is thought to be able to predict it within a, a plus or minus 3% margin of error. So that's fairly accurate, I would say. So, um, so that's another approach. Yeah, that and that probably that approach is, well, it's tried and tested and it's been around for a long time, probably before the uh, bioimpedance machines were actually invented. Uh, and I think this skinfold measurement is, is often considered to be a preferred method of body fat measurement because it's easy to administer and there is proven accuracy. Um, although it's not unobtrusive, um, it, it, it sort of... Um, well, I think sometimes people are, well, could be a little bit embarrassed or inhibited to getting this done because often you need somebody else to do it for you. Um, you really do need somebody else to do it for you, actually. Um, and um, 
I, I've had it done um, when in the past when I was uh, a client at a PT gym and I really didn't like to get it done. But I used to just like steal myself and think, well, I've got to because that's how I'm going to know that I'm making progress. And it did actually help me appreciate the changes that occurred in my body, particularly as I started uh, losing the fat and increasing the muscle, um, it was um, it was really helpful to get it done every couple of months, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, um, a skinfold improvement on the the abdomen area, so an improvement of say, you know, an example would be between thirty five millimeters to twenty four millimeters, would show a significant improvement, and that often can happen. Um, even if the overall body fat percentage might have only reduced minimally. And it also can help, you know, sometimes the the scales don't, the weight doesn't change, but the measurements do, and that can uh, be quite motivating. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that, Aileen. Um, But but I also agree with the fact that for some people it might be – yeah, uh, potentially uh, embarrassing to to have done, um, but but if you can get over that, then as you as you saw, it can um, it it can be a driver in sort of carrying on, and and mm-hmm. you can see the results. I think really the principal disadvantage of the of using the calipers is um, for the need to for it to be done accurately. So it is important to. Um, to get someone to do it you can't really do it yourself so so find somebody that's actually trained in it another uh, popular approach is the bia that you spoke about alien so that bioelectrical impedance analysis for body composition um, and like you were saying, these machines can be found in many gyms these days and some nutritional therapists use them as well. Now, this method determines body composition by running a really small electrical current through the body. And what I would just say there is that because of that, if somebody's got a pacemaker, you wouldn't want to be using BIA with them or if somebody's pregnant. Um, but as as the electrical conductivity is different between various bodily tissues, so for example, muscle, fat, bone, etc., due to their variation in water content, the small electrical current passes through the tissue at different speeds. So, and and with this information, the machine um, is then able to calculate the impedance, so the resistance of the electrical current, and then from that estimate body composition. Um, now BIA, so body that body um, bioelectrical impedance analysis is commonly uh, used as a method um, for body composition assessments in clinical practice, like I say, with nutritional therapists and and other people, but also in research studies as well, because it can look at different parts of the body and it isn't invasive. Yeah, and there's lots of advantages to using this approach. Obviously, it's quick and simple to use the technology. Um, It measures total body water. It's easy to be measured because you can usually do it in an upright position. Sometimes some machines use a a sitting or lying position, so it's suitable for most people. Um, 
often the the modern machines use um, eight electrodes um, systems allowing for an independent assessment of limbs and trunk. And that's um, reported to be more accurate than the traditional uh, wrist wrist and ankle measurements. Um, And there are some recent developments in these technologies which involve systems that incorporate multiple frequencies and multiple body segments so um, you know there's such a wide range of technology and machines out there Um, but you can you can also get some domestic style weighing machines which will give you some of these measurements um, including something called visceral fat rating Um, so these are like typically bathroom scales that will um, give you some some indications so you know if for as an amateur or somebody that just wants to have a little bit of insight into um you know things like what your muscle mass is and what your fat percentage is and what your visceral fat rating is it can be quite interesting um and visceral fat rating is a really important mark for health which i know we'll probably talk about later karen yeah, absolutely. And like you've sort of portrayed, there are a lot of um, advantages to to um, bioimpedance analysis. However, there are some limitations as well, because this free fat mass is estimated, assuming that there is a good hydration level um, of, of 73%, actually, which is quite high. And um, so, so if you get in get situations where hydration is altered, then potentially the use of the the this analysis system for body composition is going to be inaccurate. Um, and also the equations for bioimpedance analysis are developed in a spe- specific population. So so are are generalizable really to similar populations only so again could have a difference between athletes and non-athletes um although with some of the devices you can switch from an athletic to a non-athletic setting so that sort of helps to to overcome that that um limitation so really although um there is increased functionality i would say of the the most recently developed BIA technologies, it isn't actually yet used as a reference method due to that reliance um, on specific assumptions. And the most important one of that being that hydration level. So, you know, it's not gold, gold standard, but I think potentially it has a reasonable, um, it, it's sort of got a reasonable measure to use with um, people in clinics. So still, um, especially with more modern technology, is potentially um, one that um, would be supportive. Mm, okay. So so what we've discussed so far is the popular approaches to body composition measurements and um, the ones that mostly people will have heard of, although there might be some other ones that could be more accurate and possibly more invasive, but expensive and time consuming to carry out like the DEXA and the BOD pod um, that we mentioned earlier. Um, so um, it, would be really interested to know what everybody's using out there. If any of you tried any of these different approaches to measuring body composition, and um, you know, always like to have some feedback. So let us know if if it's something that you've used, and um, 
drop us an email at hello at Runners Health Hub. Uh, that would be really helpful. And also, if anybody would like any additional information about the methods that we've spoken about equally, send us an email and we'll uh, we'll send you some information. So, Karen, could we move on now and look at why body composition is so important for health and, and obviously for running as well? What What can you tell us? Yeah, absolutely, Aileen. So let's let's have a look at sort of general health first. And I think it is widely recognised that any excess fat, especially this visceral fat, so the, the fat around the abdominal organs, could in- increase the risk of developing certain health conditions, including the likes of type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular um, disease, as well as other metabolic conditions as well. But as we said right at the beginning, a certain amount of body fat is important because fat and the lipids play critical role in the overall functioning of the body, such as um, digestion and energy metabolism. Oh gosh, I can't get my words out. Metabolism, so that energy metabolism. And fat is, you know, we have to remember that fat is the body's energy provider and energy reserve, which helps the body to maintain a constant temperature. And also fat and lipids are involved in the production and regulation of some hormones, such as steroid hormones. Now, again, these are essential in regulating um, sexuality, reproduction and development of the human sex organs, as well as in regulating the water balance in the body. And also um, they have important structural roles in maintaining nerve impulse transmission, memory storage and tissue structure. And um, and they are a major component of cell membranes. So, so lots of um, reasons that we need a certain amount of fat in our diet. Um, and it is also an insulator and a protector of organs. Um, and approximately 50% of all fat deposits are in and around the organ. So again, we need so much of, of that protective and, and insulating fat, but it's when there's, when it's taken in an excess that, that then, um, can potentially lead to health issues. Okay. So lots of uh, important reasons to be focusing on, um, having a healthy body composition um and and i think if we if we sort of just think about running for a minute um and thinking about fat in particular fat serves as a, an energy reserve for the body particularly as running progresses and and fat is used as a an energy source as exercise progresses in duration you know somewhere when we're out doing those long long runs uh, it's also a major contributor for energy for endurance events and um, and we encourage fat as fuel um, so therefore we're preserving glycogen stores yeah absolutely alien so so as a runner you know if some fat is really important and just to add to that you know the immune system is is often impaired when body fat stores are too low um so a reduced ability to fight infections means more interruption in training and more chance of being sick um during training or when it comes to uh, race day 
And um, and for female athletes, there are some um, really immediate consequences of too low body fat levels, including a fall in circulating estrogen levels. And this in turn can then lead to a loss of bone mass, causing problems um, potentially for women in later life through that increased risk of, um, of bone fracture. But on the flip side of that, for running performance, excess body fat lowers that work to weight ratio. So that power to weight ratio. And this could then mean that a heavier person would consume more energy per minute of work. And that would result in lower energy economy during activity. And also, when we look at excess body fat, it can lead to um, an additional load placed on joints during running, uh, potentially causing that joint distress, joint injury, therefore taking us um, out of running and reducing performance. Now, healthy or athletic body fat percentages typically allow for more optimal performances due to that improved economy and that reduced risk of injury. So going back to what we said in the beginning, it is about appropriate and optimal um body composition, depending on whether it's for health goals, performance goals, um, and that will depend on the individual. Yeah, and that's a really great point you make there, Karen. It's it's all about having a healthy body fat composition, not too much, not too little. And it, it's all about balance, which is what we always talk about, and the body does need balance. Um, so now that we're talking about running, um, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about why body composition is important for a runner, but is there anything else that you could expand upon there, Karen? Yeah, absolutely. Like I said earlier, an athletic body fat percentage is thought to support optimal um performance. Um, and interestingly, in, in recent years, body composition assessment has actually become a fundamental and essential part of the evaluation of um, elite and professional athletes' health status overall. So, um, so it's very much used in that area of sport. Now, I think this is probably... Um, linking it to the risk of some athletes developing red s so that relative energy deficiency in sport where athletes could become um, underweight and going back to that insufficiency of body fat and lean muscle to support their performance um now, the use of body composition in athletes really is to, to help preserve that long-term performance and health of the individual athlete because that physical stress during training and during race or competition could lead to body composition alterations, which can be detrimental to them. Um, and, and the body composition parameters that are monitored and, and these athletes and, and really all athletes and runners would be the fat mass, the fat-free mass that we've spoken about, hydration status um, that you mentioned, Aileen, and also bone health, all really important. Um, and, it, and it would be really important to understand and depart determine the optimal physique for any given runner or athlete again it's not a one-size-fits-all it's very individual um 
And and again, like I say, this monitoring of athletes could really help avoid any sort of potentially harmful practices occurring that could lead to that excessively rapid um, or extensive changes in body composition, which you you do see sometimes in these um, sports where you have to make weight. Yeah, and I, th- I think what you say there about long-term health and long-term performance is really, really important for people to remember, you know, that that is a really important thing that's got- going to underpin the rest of your life, really. So it's important that you do get the balance when it comes to managing body composition. Um, we did do uh, an episode on the subject of Red S uh, quite a while ago, it was episode 54, and it was all about eating enough to run. Um, and I think that's, um, you know, worth a listen if it's a subject that you'd like to know a little bit more about. Um, but I, I think also something to highlight here, Karen, is that body composition is is subject to constant change. And there's a lot of factors to be considered when determining an, a, a sort of an individual's ideal body composition. And the dynamics of changes in body composition do vary at different periods of life. So uh, particularly if we were to look at fat mass, um, the degree of fat mass of any given individual may be linked to lifestyle, age, gender, the level of physical activity, Sometimes ethnicity is is a factor, um, as well as the overall body composition. So, you know, we've got to um, adapt. Really, I think that's what I'm saying is adapt and understand that you your body composition may vary from um, age phase to age phase or at different points of your life. Yeah, absolutely, Aileen. You speak about age there. If we were to look at age, you know, there are lots of studies that have shown um, that there is a, an increase in body weight and fat mass with age um, and a decrease in fat-free mass really after young adulthood. So we really start to to lose that muscle mass and bone mass from quite a young age. And weight gain, sort of looking at that as a as a higher percentage of, of body fat, is um, seen to be most prominent in adults over 60 years of age. Um, and that is thought to be linked to a reduced physical uh, reduced physical activity from around that age. But also what's interesting is that weight gain appears to be more significant in women compared to men as they as they age. Mm. So that would suggest that age and gender impact on the degree of change of body composition through time. So thinking about gender, Karen, are there any female factors that we should consider uh, when thinking about body composition? Yeah, actually, there are several. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, weight gain does appear to be more significant in women compared to men as as we age. Um, also, due to sort of human physiology, women do have a higher value of fat mass um, overall than men. Um, but interestingly, in general, it's thought that more men are overweight and or obese besides women. Um, And also with age, women tend to show a gradual increase in fat mass with a simultaneous decrease in free fat mass and total body water. Now, there is a theory that in the postmenopause phase, when the production of estrogen from the ovaries declines, um, is that fat cells manufacture small amounts of estrogen. And this could be a reason um, women have increased fat mass at this time of life as well. 
Now, when thinking about um, women having this gradual increase in fat mass, men, on the other hand, tend to significantly decrease in fat mass after the age of 40. And they have a simultaneous increase in free fat mass in total body water. Now, this is thought to be due to the fact that in men, the peak of body weight increase um, with age occurs much earlier than in women. And then that's followed by a normalization or a decrease in body weight. So we really are made up quite differently. Mm, yeah, interesting. Yeah, it is. But I have to say, you know, just to, to, to conclude that that area, fat accumulation in both sexes will proceed with different intensity, and that will depend on their, their nutrition um, and there also the amount of physical activity undertaken and the general lifestyle. So all of those will have an influence on how somebody, uh, somebody's body composition is going to change as they age, be male or female. Mm. So, Aileen, um, that concludes um, all the sort of female factors that I wanted to sort of speak about at the moment. And just before we move on to discuss nutrition for body composition, shall we just take a, a quick advert break? Yeah, of course. Uh, this is a moment in the episode where Karen and I take a minute just to tell you a little bit about what we do outside of the podcast. And uh, we've been talking a lot about body composition, weight loss or gain, energy production and and various uh, other issues today. And all of these aspects are aspects of well-being, which are key to our Healthy Woman, Healthy Runner method. Um, and you know, over the over the years that we've been working together, we've found that women uh, tell us often that they're unhappy with the way they look and feel, especially as they transition through midlife. Um, many women just seem to be resigned to it, which is uh, it's very sad for us to hear. And we often hear them say, well, that's just the way it is, or it's the menopause, or I'll just have to put up with it. But it doesn't have to be that way. And uh, we, and I talk about the royal we, as women of a certain age, just need to be more strategic in our approach to nutrition, exercise, and also lifestyle cho choices so that we can flourish and we can continue to enjoy our running and our everyday lives through midlife and beyond that. Um, so to help empower you, we, we developed our Healthy Woman, Healthy Runner method. And the magic of our method is how we, well, we deliver it. Um, and the core of everything that we do is to ensure that the program is easy for you to implement. And we personally guide you through a 90-day step-by-step method. So if you're curious to more, know more about the method, we'd um, love to invite you to join the wait list uh, for the Healthy Woman, Healthy Runner method so that you're first in line for the special price offers, bonuses and priority booking that's available for you. Um, we'll put the link in our show notes. So all you have to do is click on the form and, um, you know, you'll, you'll get on the list and we'll let you know um, when we're next opening the doors. And you can also read all about the Healthy Woman, Healthy Runner method at our website. So look at runnershealthup.com click on the uh, work with us page and you'll see a drop down and you can read all about the healthy woman, healthy runner method there. And that'll help you with optimal body composition throughout midlife and beyond. 
Great. Thanks, Aileen. Okay, so on that note, let's now um, move on and discuss some foods to support appropriate body composition. Now, the three key nutrients for energy and muscle development, really, um, um, therefore, the the three key nutritional influences of weight gain and loss and optimal body composition are the carbohydrates, proteins and fats. So, And as most people know, these are the macronutrients. Now, vitamins and minerals will be really important as well because they will influence the absorption, metabolism and utilisation of these macronutrients. However, today we're going to focus on the macros, so on carbohydrate, protein and fat. So so let's begin with carbohydrate. Now, as we know, carbohydrate is one of the limiting factors in exercise performance. Therefore, it is an important nutrient in the diet of a runner. But carbohydrates come in many forms, some being more beneficial than others, and some requiring you strategically linked to training load and not eating ad lib. Now, we've probably all heard the phrase, a calorie is a calorie. Therefore, by following the eat less, move more model, weight loss will occur. But there is a wealth of more recent research now showing that a calorie is not just a calorie. It is all about how we digest, how we absorb and how we metabolize the food and the influences of hormones as well released in that digestive process. Now, thinking about the hormones, I'm thinking principally here of insulin. And I was reading a research paper from 2018, which was exploring the carbohydrate insulin model. Now, this paper um, suggests that fat cells really are central to the development of overweight and obesity and that insulin is the hormone that controls their growth. And what it does is it diverts glucose from the bloodstream and deposits it into the fat cells rather than having that free glucose um, available in the bloodstream for metabolism and oxidation um, in, in, in lean tissue. So I, I think that is a really interesting um, 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 res- piece of research. And um, what this means is that there's a reduction in free glucose, um, which leads to increased hunger and potentially overeating, as well as a slowing of the metabolic rate. And that's what uh, leads to um, the overweight and obesity. So there's real close link between um, carbohydrate and insulin release. Yeah. And that's, you know, what we've got to really um, consider is that this will very much depend on what type of carbohydrate rich foods are being consumed. So the foods that drive insulin uh, release are the sugar rich, the quick release carbohydrates. And you find them in refined products such as sweets, cakes, uh, the white grains and bread, starchy vegetables, the tropical and dried fruits, the ones that are highly sugary. Whereas the other carbohydrates that that we would um, describe as being slow release are whole grains and the non-root vegetables and some fruits. Um, So they sort of release release insulin at a much slower steady uh, place. Um, So that maintains uh, the balance between that freely available glucose and the stored glycogen that you were talking about there, Karen. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and because complex carbohydrate foods are satiating, then there is less likelihood of overeating them. Whereas with the refined carbohydrate foods, that tends to lead to, to hunger shortly after we consume them. And that can then lead to this vicious cycle of high sugar and high insulin levels. Now, insulin um doesn't so so insulin doesn't um only influence the circulation of free glucose it it could also um suppress the release of fatty acids from fat cells so you know fat is used as fuel um for running remember so we do need to be able to release them from the fat cells. But also, if fatty acids are unable to leave the fat cells due to the influence of um, insulin, then we can't lose weight either. That can't occur. But also, the insulin, uh, high insulin may inhibit the production of ketones in the liver. And remember, ketones are another form of um, energy when glucose is not freely available. And, um, and also, um, insulin does promote that fat, fat depositing in fat cells or that adipose tissue, as it's also known. So, so, so insulin is really influential, as we can see, um, on, on carbohydrates um, and overall body composition. Mm. So, so what we can deduce from that discussion is that the type of carbohydrates that we we consume in our foods can have varying effects on hormone secretion, metabolic pathways, possibly also the microbiome, and all of these things can influence fat storage. So that sort of reminds me of a an episode um, that we did a while ago, episode 41, which was um, called Blood Sugar Balance for Female Runners. And that was um, where we talked about high GL foods versus having a low GL approach to carbohydrate intake. So GL stands for glycemic load in the portion of a food. And some foods have a high GL load and some foods have a low GL load. And um, Typically, as I mentioned earlier, the, the highly refined carbohydrates tend to be high in uh, glucose load. Um, so the white breads, the pastry, the pasta, the biscuits, the cakes, the sweets, all those high sugary foods like the tropical foods, fruits, dried fruits, soft drinks, alcohol, uh, and also some of the, the starchy root vegetables have high GL too. Uh, whereas the low GL carbohydrates other things that also we mentioned, the whole grains, the pasta, uh, low sugar fruits, and also some of the root vegetables. Um, so it's, it's really focusing on having low GL foods and just a small amount of high GL foods. Yeah, but but also, you know, we advise to minimise the the high glycemic load foods. But as runners, they're not entirely off limits. It's just that it's best to have smaller portions. Now, there are some high GL foods like the white rice, medjool dates, honey, bananas, which are great quick release carbohydrates for runners. But the trick is really to use them strategically, which is what I said way back in at the beginning, um, and using them strategically with your your um, running nutrition plan. So depending on how much training you're doing and the distances that you're running, um, 
So, so because you want to be repleted glycogen stores, but without disrupting overall that balance of insulin. So it's about using them strategically. So, so that's carbohydrate. I think maybe we should move on and um, take a look at, at protein. Um, so, so we've looked at carbohydrate as an approach to manage fat mass, the principal function of protein here is to manage um, muscle mass. So really to trigger that lean muscle development uh, whilst limiting um, loss of lean muscle, which does naturally um, occur with age, as I, I think we mentioned earlier. And, and I think it is really important to focus on muscle mass whilst you're trying to reduce fat mass because changes um, in energy intake, which generally occurs um when we're we're looking at body composition, could result in muscle loss, which um, which again, then if you're if you're maybe losing losing um, fat mass, but you're also losing muscle mass, that's not going to result in an appropriate or an optimal body composition. So you really want to be maintaining your muscle mass and um, increasing it if that's what you're looking for. So the idea here really is to increase the consumption of protein on a daily basis, really choosing protein sources that are high in the essential amino acids and the branch chain amino acids, particularly leucine, because as we know, and we've mentioned before, it is the master trigger of muscle protein synthesis. But also that um, protein-induced insulin response also helps to reduce the um, muscle protein breakdown. So really a win-win situation by increasing your protein intake um, during a period of time when you want to adapt body composition. Yeah, and also when reducing energy intake to support fat loss. So we're talking about reducing the amount of food that you, you're eating. Um offsetting the negative net muscle protein balance um, is is important to um, include resistance exercise alongside a high protein diet that would be a recommendation and that will help minimize the muscle protein uh, breakdown um, so in addition to the effect of uh, protein stimulating the uh, muscle protein synthesis uh, proteins also that the the, the primary macronutrient for uh, keeping you full so having that feeling of satisfaction following a meal so um, that will you know stop you having those cravings and, and wanting more food yeah, absolutely, Aileen. And I think that feeling of satiety is or feeling full is especially helpful in um, in supporting compliance as well to a change in dietary intake um, to support that that fat loss or that lower energy intake overall. So really helping somebody stay on plan. And because if you start to feel hunger, like you were saying, you get the craving, so you re and you get fixated with food, therefore you want to eat, but protein can help uh, minimise that. But also, um, in addition to that, you know, many protein-containing foods are also nutrient-dense foods. For example, protein from um, eggs, uh, dairy, um, some meats and poultry, and also the legumes, so the beans, um, pulses, lentils, provide essential, um, as well as providing the essential amino acids, they also provide vitamin B12, iron, zinc, calcium, and vitamin D, to name a few, which are important for runners. Um, 
So really sort of helping to provide adequate micronutrients as well as the macros, um, but but also, you know, a, a high intake of, of non-root vegetables would also be recommended of sources of micronutrients as well. But it, it's just kind of um, reiterating the fact that by increasing protein, you're not only increasing your, your um, essential amino acids, you're increasing your intake of um, micronutrients as well. Yeah, well, every every food has more than one function, doesn't it, Karen? So it's good to uh, to remember that. So let's quickly uh, take a look at fat just before we come to the end of the episode. Um, now, it's known um, to have an influence on, on insulin levels, but different types of fat eaten could have a, an influence on fat mass. So uh, omega threes and six, the essential fatty acids are the recommended fats to to consume. So they're often known as the the healthy fats. So things like fish, nuts, seeds, oils um, are really important. Um, And we also need a certain amount of saturated fats um, because they're important for vitamin D synthesis and also for hormone production. So coconut oil and small amounts of animal fats like butter and full fat yogurt and milk if if you can tolerate those in in your food plan. Um, But the the ones we wanted to um, mention that would be good to minimize or uh, um, maybe even avoid completely are the ones that have a limited nutritional value and and could lead to weight um, fat gain, if you like, mass gain. Um, And they're the the processed uh, fats. So those that are hydrogenated or, or known as trans fats, so things that are like processed cakes and pastries and fried and processed foods, because these fats are also uh, and are also inflammatory and they produce free radicals and they can lead to oxidative stress and that could impact not only on body composition but also on running performance and, and other health issues. Yeah, absolutely, Aileen. And just to add to what you mentioned, um, for runners, healthy fats are also really important for speeding up metabolism, for um, modulating inflammation. So, so really trying to to help reduce that, but also protecting against cell damage. So the oxidative stress that you mentioned earlier, the, the healthy fats can can help uh, minimize the oxidative stress, therefore protect against cell damage. So another another point that I just wanted to um, sort of point out so that people can consider is if the if you are aiming to have a leaner body composition, it's really important to include healthy fats, but control the portion size of the healthy fats that you're having. So the ones we mentioned earlier, eggs, oily fish, things like avocados, nuts, seeds, oils, um, and at it's important to eat small portions regularly uh, so that you're supporting your overall health, but not to overconsume them. And these foods are often very tasty and, and they're easy to overeat. And often because they're promoted as being healthy for you, we think that we've got free reign to eat whatever we want. But it, it's really important that you just um, have small, regular portions. Um, we have mentioned this in other episodes, but the fact that the sort of recommended healthy fat intake uh, required is similar for athletes and non-athletes alike. Um and it tends to remain unchanged, that guidance, unless body composition and fat 
fat loss is the goal. Um, so if you are in a position where you're just trying to maintain, um, then you, we would suggest one gram of fat per kilogram of body weight per day. But if you're in a situation where you are wanting to reduce uh, the, the fat mass in your body, you would reduce that to 0.5 grams per kilogram of body weight per day. And so just some uh, ideas of sort of average healthy portion sizes of fats, that would be you know, maybe a quarter to a half of an avocado, a small salmon fillet, one to two eggs, a small tin of sardines or anchovies. Uh, nuts, again, tend to be ones that could be overeaten. So three large nuts or six small nuts would be great for a snack or a dessert spoon of, of nut butter. So that gives you an idea of small portions, small healthy portions um, we did do a, a Facebook Live about that recently, um, and the video is still up there in our uh, free Facebook group. So if you'd like to uh, check what else we talked about on that subject, you could um, join our group. So that's Easy Nutrition for Healthy Runners Hub on Facebook, and you can see um, our episode there. Okay, so I think that sort of rounds up what we've got to say about macronutrients, Karen. So we've we've covered um carbohydrates protein and fat and how they can influence your body composition and, and some ideas about what you might want to um take on board if you want to change your body composition so i think we're going to have to leave it for there today we're almost at the top of the hour but before we go i wondered if you could give us your key takeaways karen yeah, sure, Aileen. So really appropriate body composition is important for general health as well as running performance. And just to remember that it will be different for everyone depending on their goals. And there are many different ways of measuring body composition, some of which are more accurate, accurate than others. But which approach is used will really depend principally on um, accessibility and budget for the individual. Now, optimal body composition does not mean reducing body fat to as little as possible because some body fat is essential for general health and for running performance. An optimal body composition is more about getting the balance between lean body mass and fat mass with a limited amount of visceral fat. So that's the fat around the organs, which is, is metabolically active. And remember that body composition is dynamic and ever-changing, and there are lots of factors to be considering um, when determining an individual's body composition, for example, lifestyle, age, gender, level of physical activity as well. And carbohydrate, protein and fat are the principal nutrients influencing body composition. Therefore, what foods containing each and how much of each is consumed needs to be considered when thinking about um, body composition. And that's it, Aileen. Well, thank you, Karen. That's been a really fascinating and quite an in-depth look at body composition. Um, hopefully, it's helped everyone gain a better understanding of the influences surrounding body composition. And remember, everyone, don't let nutrition be the limiting factor in your running performance. Well, this brings us to the end of another episode of She Runs, Eats, Performs, brought to you by Runners Health Hub, helping female runners to be fitter, faster and stronger. We really hope you've enjoyed listening and you'll join us again soon. In the meantime, we'd be so grateful if you check us out on iTunes and leave a review. 
And once again, thanks for listening and do let us know if there are any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes. Bye for now. We'd like to introduce you to our show sponsor, Amazing Jane Activewear for Women's Changing Bodies, recommended as best leggings for running by Women's Fitness Magazine. We think they have everything a female runner needs. First of all, they are high compression to support your legs and bum. They have a deep waistband so they stay up and they don't move about when you run. There's a handy left pocket for your phone and a zip pocket on the waistband which is great for your cards or a key. They also have a hidden tracker pocket for storing a GPS tracking device, and this is a unique safety feature. All Amazing Jane designs, including tanks and tops, are cut to skim, not cling, giving you confidence to look and feel great and focus on performance. Karen and I have been trialing wearing their range for a few months, and we can happily recommend them. So if you'd like to try Amazing Jane Activewear, please use our listeners' special discount code RHH10 for 10% off all purchases at amazingjane.com. Amazing Jane ship around the world, so please check their website for details. Thanks again to Amazing Jane Activewear for being our show sponsor and for sharing discount code RHH10 for 10% off all purchases.